part of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, this is The Valley Labor Report. We are still live this Saturday morning. We are now in overtime, the second half of the program where we are online only, where we have freed ourselves from the shackles of the FCC censors, which uh, hopefully they didn't catch Reed's slip-up and he doesn't get us kicked off the radio. Maybe they won't. We'll see. Oh, yeah. He did say bullshit, didn't <laughs> he? He did. He did. Uh, but maybe they didn't notice it. Maybe the FCC censors don't listen to the Valley Labor Report. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. see if anyone was paying attention. <laughs> Maybe that should be our fun new game. Like every every few weeks, we sprinkle in something just yeah. to see who's noticing. Maybe, maybe that that would be a fun game, uh, and just see how long it takes for somebody to give us a call. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like we said, we got a good overtime. Uh, but let's get to some. We've had a lot of comments in the chat, and we really appreciate everybody everybody's comments, particularly the super chats. Uh, Strom McCallum at a ten dollars super chat at the beginning of the show. Western capital could not survive a united class conscious Southern proletariat. We will either be its great bulwark of reaction or the element that tips the scales and ends it. Rain. Uh, I would generally agree with that. I think. Good, uh, good comment. Yeah, good comment. Appreciate it and appreciate the $10. $5 from Hot Beef Polish. Professor Reed is one of the sharpest political minds in our times. This Yank is glad to see him on the show and supports a strong Southern proletariat. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I always love to see the uh, Yankee solidarity. That's right. I, I know Yankee is a controversial word. Some people get offended by that, but I mean it with all <laughs> due respect. Uh, since you did say it, you were one, yes. you admitted it. That's right. uh, and we love we love it when uh, our northern brothers and sisters uh, support us. Yes, generally I have I have found that uh, most people take it in stride, uh, take the jabs in stride. But uh, but there have been there have been a couple uh, a couple people from up north who have uh, not liked my references to. Yankees. Uh, another $10 super chat from Strom McCallum. Post-age of discovery race ideology in both its white supremacist and woke forms is a tool for the division of the working class and the organization of capitalist production. Um, yeah. That much sounds like what uh, Professor Reed w- was speaking about, honestly. Yeah, uh, I, I uh, would, you know, um, I would tentatively agree with that. I wouldn't want to go just too far with it uh you know i would i wouldn't want to paint too broad a brush with that but there is certainly uh there is certainly two forms um of of a uh, you know uh you could say a race ideology that does divide the working class um and uh but i wouldn't want to be too broad with that yeah and i think uh, professor reed spoke to it a little bit in terms mm-hmm. of you know the strains of i mean we obviously we all know about the reactionary white supremacist strains but there are, you know, the strains within liberalism mm-hmm. uh, that, yeah, want, as y'all discussed, you know, wants working class black folks to identify with Oprah and right. LeBron and yes. Michael Jordan and uh, or even worse, 
the the gentleman you mentioned who was on the panel, uh, an actual, you know, bonafide capitalist. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, uh, black capitalism is not going to save anybody except the black capitalists. <laughs> right, yeah, and, and that's something, that's where I've had some disagreement with, with liberals here in this state where, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm not impressed with a more diverse oligarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if if a boot is on your neck, it doesn't really matter the color of the skin of who, you know, of the foot right. inside. You you can put rainbows and unicorns on the boot if it's if it's on my neck it's on my neck. Yeah, for sure. And and like I said, you know, there's there is danger in going too far with that because Absolutely. even even in even in the in the case of you know there there being a more diverse ruling class, while certainly there are that doesn't get at the heart of of uh, you know the the relations, but there are some some even material things that are going that that are. Um, affected for members of marginalized communities when uh uh you know when the class strata is not racial or gendered or sexual uh or or, or you know uh decided by sexual orientation i think that yeah. there is i think that there is a good to that uh but it is it definitely has its limits or and and the limits are um very big <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean i think you know, this is one of those words that's maybe been overused a little bit, intersectionality. But, you know, intersectionality to me is just common sense and just recognizing how class intersects with race and gender and other aspects of society. It just seems like common sense to me uh, and just recognizing reality for what it is. But, uh, yeah, we've had a very active comment section this morning. Really appreciate that. And, uh, you know... Apparently, uh, Reed is is controversial in some circles. Uh, Here's a little confession, folks. Me, personally, I pay very little mind to online controversies. Uh, So if someone has been canceled on Twitter, there is a very, very strong chance I don't know anything about it. I may not know why they were canceled, who canceled them. I may not even know the person being canceled. Uh, so just, just keep that in mind. Uh, I, I stay away from all that kind of stuff, uh, intentionally to the best of my ability. So, uh, there may be online controversies and stuff that, that pop up about folks that I'm not aware of. Um, we have guests from a pretty varied background of divert, you know, in terms of politics and beliefs. I mean, we have people who are conservatives all the way to you know, radical Marxist on this show, uh, everything in between. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, I think, uh, me personally, I really enjoyed the conversation and, and learned something from it. And, uh, yeah, definitely enjoyed the book as a lifelong Southerner. Um, uh, and, and I think there was a lot that resonated with me. Yeah. Uh, we also, we do have a phone number, 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. Uh, we don't have any callers, but we will monitor the lines. Uh, we did get a text message during the show, though, uh, or right before the show started, uh, from Jack from New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jack from New Jersey says, I recently found out that my city's school district issued nearly 100 non-renewals to teachers and staff, with special ed being particularly hard hit due to budget shortfalls that seem more like, quote, 
failure of management to plan at all, unquote. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the city is moving closer to approval of a major luxury condo development with a payment in lieu of taxes, pilot provision that allows developers to pay fixed fees instead of property taxes like normal. We all know where most public school districts get their funding, uh, which is property taxes for those who maybe don't know. Are pilots or similar abatements as common a problem in Alabama? I'm seeing them all over New Jersey and they are a scourge on tenants and public schools. Also, I find out that I found out that the teachers union here in New Jersey is one of the very few in the country to have last in, first out as part of their contract. It makes the anti-teacher folks so mad. This restricts management use of budgetary layoffs to arbitrarily target teachers and staff. As you've said on the show, if they want to fire a teach uh, a teacher for quote being bad, the contract lays out exactly how they can go about it. Have mm-hmm. a great show. Thanks for that, Jack from New Jersey. Yeah, so absolutely. Any uh, Adam, you would obviously know more about this than than I would. Um, yeah, I mean, this time of year, every year for five years, I, I dealt with a wave of non renewals from the school district. Uh, you know, the people who were probationary, non-tenured, at-will employees who were let go at the end of the year. Um, I hate to hear what's happening there in your, your city in Jersey because that is a true slap in the face for there to be, you know, cuts to special education staffing at the same time that property developers are, are getting a big giveaway. Uh, and I, I think that's a, definitely an organizing issue. And I don't know, you know, what what kind of uh organizing is happening in the city if you know the union is working with parents and community members and coalition around that uh but i certainly you know think that's that's worthy uh yeah it's it's always a tough thing and and uh in terms of last in first out yeah i mean i i I went through some issues with this when the district wanted to change its reduction in force policy uh and so we we had to go you know back and forth on this and uh, yeah, management always wants arbitrary discretion. Mm-hmm. They always, always, always want to be able to do, you know, make employment decisions on an arbitrary basis. Of course. Uh, which is why it's important that the union do does fight for these rules so that there is some equity and fairness involved. Uh, but yeah, thanks for your, for your text, Jack, and uh, definitely keep us posted on what's going on up there, and, and best of luck to, to y'all's organizing efforts to try to hold the city leadership accountable and, and you know, restore these uh, this funding to special education in particular. That's that's a very mm-hmm. vulnerable population. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. So uh, so like like Adam said, appreciate it and best of luck to y'all. Uh, but specifically, he asked if pilots are common in Alabama. Oh, pilots, okay. uh, payment so in lieu of taxes I and other seeing, abatements. I am definitely seeing, I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of these kinds of uh, plans where uh, these new developments, yeah, they, I think they're called TIFs here in mm. Alabama, a lot of them. Uh, now, in some cases, it's carved out to where the school share of the property taxes are still being paid. Mm. But, you know, like the city's share maybe is not. Gotcha. Uh, so it just, you know, the devil's in the details. But yes, there's definitely a lot of that kind of economic development happening here. Happening here. You know, when our politicians in Alabama say economic development, you can just about bet the bank that the company is getting a tax write-off, a tax subsidy, uh, you know, maybe just a flat-out check. 
uh, you know, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the city of Athens is spending about $5 million to a property developer to make sure a strip mall is built. Because, uh, you know, we really got to make sure the TJ Maxx gets built. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure... And it's going to bring jobs, is what I right, hear, Adam. Right, yeah. I mean, there could be tens of jobs. There could be tens of jobs. And, and maybe if you add them all up, it might make a living wage. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, you know, maybe maybe like the tens of jobs that are created and, and the total salary yeah. of all of them would be a living wage for one would person. Be, yeah, yeah, it would be like adding one, you know, decent sized uh, salary. So, yeah, that's definitely a trend. And I think uh, that's something that I personally want to learn more about is like local economic development. And how could we do that in a way that actually puts working mm-hmm. people first and centers the community uh, and I know Jobs to Move America has been doing some really cool and interesting work around community benefits agreements. And I think that could be something, uh, you know, that could be a way forward in terms of reframing these discussions of economic development and doing it in a mm-hmm. way that really does benefit working people and not just handouts to corporate America. Yeah. Um, speaking of like, you know, learning more about that kind of stuff, strong towns. Have you heard of them? Uh, I've heard the name, but not not super familiar yeah, with their work. I've heard <clears throat> Strong Towns on a few, like their executive director on a few podcasts and stuff. And it's interesting because um, if I recall correctly, I, I think that actually the executive director, or at least at one point, one of the people who have been on podcasts that I have listened is kind of like a libertarian-y type person, uh, generally politically. Uh, but Strong Towns is really about... Um, uh, uh, structuring economic incentives in, in a way that is actually going to benefit the community in, in, in a better way. And so, like, one of the things that they really, really try to advocate for is, uh, you know, rather than giving uh, space and tax abatements and tax breaks to or, uh, to businesses like Walmart or Target or something like this, uh, that, that you direct that same amount of money to four or five local businesses. And that actually they have data that, that show that you know, for every l- small local business like a Jimmy's Pizza Shop, that is going to generate X times more revenue than the same amount of square footage if you had a Walmart in there. Right. Uh, and so it's better to invest instead in Jimmy's Pizza Shop than uh, Walmart. In- invest in four or five Jimmy Pizza Shops. Right, than, than right. Because the money is staying in your community right. as opposed to being siphoned off to corporate headquarters somewhere else to, you know, shareholders on Wall Street. Uh, and so, yeah, I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, and I actually think that that I, I spoke to a city council person about strong towns a long time ago, like this was probably 2017, 2018, back when I was more active in electoral politics. Um, and and she said that uh, she said that actually strong towns had given a, a presentation to the Huntsville City Council at that time. So, OK, um, yeah. Well, that's that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I will say uh, a couple years ago, there was another little uh, political battle in Athens over incentives. Oh, gosh, it was for like a Chipotle or some fast food restaurant. And they ended up backing down after pushback. And uh, I remember I, me and a, another guy were very vocal about it. And he happened to be a business owner. Hmm. So here I am, Mr. Union guy. Mm-hmm. with the small business owner. Right. But we had the same point, which is, mm. um, you know, why why are we picking and choosing these, you know, these mm. subsidies? 
picking and choosing winners and right, losers. picking and choosing winners and losers, right? And small and and small businesses right. in the community weren't getting these breaks that chains were. Now, uh, and, and something I just saw from Strom uh, that small businesses are generally worse to work for than corporations. I do not disagree there. I think that often is the case. And there's like so much propaganda around small businesses mm-hmm. and the small business owner. Uh, and family businesses, quote unquote. So yeah, the small business tyrants—that's a real thing, definitely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I guess the, just the, the... Here's so here's to me an even better solution than like local businesses. It would be what if instead of five million dollars going to a developer to bring some chain stores, you had five million dollars to develop worker-owned co-ops. Right in your community, whether they be a pizza shop or a laundromat Mm. or, uh, you know, a a service company of some kind, a window cleaning service. I mean, who knows? Whatever the situation may be, uh, I think you would find so much more community wealth building in that scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And Strom says, uh, you know, and and when he says, yeah, about um, being worse to work for or not small businesses versus larger corporations, I do think that analysis generally does hold true. And Matt Brunig is actually, you know, Matt Brunig, you're not on Twitter, Adam, but he has a lot of bits on Twitter that he does that he really likes and that he he believes sincerely. But the way he puts them um, really kind of gets under people's skin. And so one of his favorite bits is to say that the majority of the Trump coalition was women and people of color, uh, which is true, but it's not like a particularly useful analysis. <laughs> but it's a, it's a funny thing to say, and so he says it, and people disagree with him, and then he just shows them that it is, in fact, true. And then they, like, I don't know, they go crazy. But it's a, it's a very funny thing. And so, But one of the, one of the things that he, he – another one of his bits, uh, which is true, but the way he says it uh, makes people angry is that, is that, you know, in fact, it is better to, to work for Walmart than, you know, your local grocery store that is owned by, you know, a, a relatively well-off – you know, uh, person where, you know, and, and, and I've seen that actually in, in, um, Hazel Green. I worked for, uh, back then it was Griner's Foodland. This was when I was 16 or 17, I guess. And I made seven twenty-five an hour. Um, and Walmart was built across the street from Griner's Foodland. And of course, you know, there is a certain sentimentality about like a local family owned, chain and and whatever uh but a lot of their servers went across the street to work for walmart because they were paying starting at 10 or 11 dollars an hour you know back in 2015 well and also the last point i'll make here on this is that in the same sense that like elites being black or gay doesn't Mm. change the fact that they're elites and therefore Mm. have a different you know relationship with us same thing with being local Right. right i mean a capitalist is a capitalist, whether they live, you know, five miles away or five thousand miles away. Um, you know, there are sure there are degrees of difference there, but a boss is a boss, mm-hmm. and even if I know where that boss lives, uh, <laughs> you know, that doesn't necessarily change the the dynamic there. Sometimes mm-hmm. it can, maybe, um, but yeah. So all that to say, we do need economic development. That is yeah. in a different model. That is a different pathway. That really does center the community and mm-hmm. working class people. And how do we build wealth from the bottom up? That is to me the key, not top down. Right. And and the last thing that I'll say on this is is just so that I'm not too 
too hard on small business owners, which, you know, obviously, like you said, a boss is a boss, capitalist is a capitalist. But 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 part of the reason that it it is uh, more difficult or, or uh, part of the thing that makes it worse to work for a small business owner, perhaps, than a large corporation is that, you know, there is actually uh, some amount of good that comes from being a large corporation in the form of, you know, uh, economies of scale, right? So there's just, there's literally just more money to go around in a Walmart than there is in a Griner's Foodland or something. You know, it's, it's quite possible. I'm, I'm sure that they could have paid me more than seven twenty five an hour, uh, but no doubt Walmart has more resources to throw around than Griner's sure. Foodland. So, right. so that's another institution. On top of the fact that, that you know, right, there are going to be petty issues with uh, local boss just like there would in, right. a, in a small boss. And, you know, when boss. there's not, when, when they're great folks and a sweet family, mm-hmm. that's, that's wonderful. Uh, but being nice and sweet to you doesn't necessarily pay the bills. And so, you know, that is what that is. but I know we've got we've got a yeah, lot, got to, a talk lot to talk about this about. morning. So um, let's, yeah, let's go ahead. And appreciate the conversation. Enjoyed engaging. Yeah, absolutely. Eight four four eight nine nine TBLR eight four four eight nine nine eight eight five seven. If you want to contrib- continue contributing to the conversation, uh, but let's talk about this. We'll open with this. Uh, Scotus bad. Scotus bad. Um, yes, the Supreme Court. <laughs> it sucks. Supreme Court sucks. Let's get rid of it. Um, there was a really great meme on Twitter that showed the Supreme Court being run over with a monster truck. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, I would vote for that. But uh, specifically, what happened last week is the decision came down in Glacier Northwest versus Teamsters Local 174. And um, I didn't like some of the coverage before it happened. And when we covered it, I did try to not fearmonger too much about it uh, because some of the stuff that I heard uh, before, it really seemed to um it really seemed to overstate the case to to an extent and um and there is still some of that now that the thing has happened but there is less of it and and now that the thing has happened i think people have a have a, a better uh kind of sense of actually what what's going on but uh the so what happened is that uh the decision opened the door to whittle away the right to strike in more cases Um, and the practical impact is that employers are going to be suing unions more often for alleged property damage caused by the strike and that therefore unions and their attorneys are likely to be more cautious this analysis is coming from labor notes alexandra bradbury definitely uh, recommend that article recommend that article highly uh, as we always recommend reading labor notes labor notes.org uh, but they, they are careful to mention that, uh, you know, the court did not do what many had feared it would, which would be to overrule longstanding precedent that employers generally cannot sue unions in state court over activities like strike, like strikes that are covered by the National Labor Relations Act. Instead, what this decision did is expand an already existing exception for intentional damage to employer property or failure to take reasonable precautions to prevent such damage. Um, And so the facts of this particular case, we've gone over it on the show before, but it's been a few months since we've talked about it. So just to briefly review, Teamsters Local 174 were um, in negotiations 
with uh, Glacier Northwest, which is a concrete company, um, and their contract had expired, and the company was stalling in their negotiations, and so they called a strike. And they called a strike after their um, after the the concrete had already been placed into the concrete mixers and uh now they did not turn off the concrete mixers the trucks uh which if they had done that it would have actually destroyed the trucks you know because the cement would have hardened inside of the mixer and that would have been you know uh, uh would have been like hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage so instead what they did is they left the trucks running they left the mixer running and they informed the company like hey you know we're going on strike right now <laughs> and um and so the company, uh, uh, they did not lose the, uh, they didn't lose the trucks, but they were not able to deliver all of the cement to the intended recipients. And so they had to dump it and they lost that, um, that amount of cement. It was like, I don't know, less than a hundred thousand dollars, not very much for a big company. And, uh, um, and so the uh, uh, and so the company says, you know, this is intentional property damage. It's not covered by the National Labor Relations Act. Blah blah blah. And well, um, prior cases state that an employer can't sue a union in state court. Uh, instead, they have to go to the NLRB. But um, there is an exception if striking employees intentionally damage employer property or don't take reasonable precautions to protect employer property. This was established uh, in a case where employees walked out of a foundry when molten iron was ready to be poured, uh, which is, you know, you could imagine that would be pretty dangerous. Uh, and the court found that that could have caused substantial property damage and that wasn't protected by the NLRA. So that exception is narrow, uh, that property damage that is intentional or caused by a lack of reasonable precautions. Uh, it does not include things like economic losses due to temporary closure of a store or factory, does not include strawberries rotting in the field because farm workers are on strike. It doesn't include milk going sour in the fridge because baristas are on strike, right? So uh, so it is narrow, and that is good, but it did expand the number of time, the exception. Um, and so... The uh, uh, just so that you understand a little bit more the the precedent that was expanded, Jane McAlevey has a really good article in the Nation where she talks about it. And so the precedent was called Garmin. It was that was the name of the case. And under Garmin, if a lawsuit is brought in state court over conduct arguably protected under federal labor law, like nonviolent peaceful direct action by workers, uh, the state court must defer to the NLRB's determination of whether the conduct was in fact protected. This lets the federal agency responsible for handling thousands of labor disputes every year decide which actions by workers are protected by the NLRA rather than some random court judge, random, uh, rather than some random state court judge, uh, most of whom only hear a few labor cases a year and have little to no expertise on the field. Pre-Garmin, pr before this exception, before this case was established, and before the National Labor Relations Act, state court interventions into labor disputes were almost uniformly disastrous to workers and unions, Jane McAlevey writes, uh, creating legal uncertainty, fear, and a tool for employers to impose ruinous liability on workers taking collective action. And that's precisely the world that the powerful interests who had lined up in support of Glacier's arguments, led by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, hoped to achieve. 
Uh, but they didn't. Uh, uh, they didn't achieve that this time. Uh, Garmin still stands, and uh, that exception was just expanded a bit. So uh, bad. Scotus bad. But the decision not as bad as it could have been. Connor Lewis, the president of the Seven Mountains Central Labor Council in Pennsylvania had a good comment on Twitter. He said, it seems some uh, like a somewhat productive way to look at Glacier Northwest uh, is to look at it similarly to Knox, which is an antecedent to Janus. Mm. Janus is the Supreme Court case that uh, created at will, or created, I'm sorry, the open shop across the federal workforce um, because the Federal Labor Relations Act allowed for union security agreements prior to Janus, which... Um, uh, could set up uh, union security clauses in their in in union contracts with the federal government, uh, which is to say that if you are a federal employee represented by a federal employee union before Janus, uh, the union could negotiate could negotiate not mandated but it could negotiate a union security agreement, meaning that if you are represented by that union represented by that contract, you have to pay some sort of fee to the union for your representation. Uh, but after Janus. That no longer applied. It's all open shop in the federal government now. And Knox was an antecedent to Janus, which kind of opened the door to it. And so what Connor is saying is that this Glacier Northwest is a potential wedge to break open the Garmin precedent, uh, which is definitely something to look out for. He says, it doesn't blow a hole in the side of existing law, but it invites a litigant to come along and do exactly that. So, uh... Certainly, certainly things to look out for, things to worry about, but uh, workers still have the right to strike. So, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's important to recognize. We, we don't want to overplay this so much and, and imply that, you know, suddenly we don't have the right to strike anymore. The implications mm-hmm. are definitely bad. Uh, the precedent it's setting is, is not good. It's, you know, I, I, I think the analogy of chipping away, that's seemed accurate uh so yeah i'm glad it was not a wholesale total defeat right um you know it's less bad than it could have been and uh unfortunately you know whether it's the debt deal or the Mm -hmm. supreme court you know this week that seems to be the case it's uh you know something that's a little less bad than it could be um and uh i will give credit to the one supreme court justice who dissented? Uh, was it is Miss Jackson, right? I believe uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, was the long dissenting opinion, uh, and had some good good words there in her uh, dissent. So I do appreciate her yeah. for uh, standing up for working people, and uh, because obviously her colleagues are not particularly interested in doing that, and right. I really. I liked uh, the statement from the Teamsters about this. I don't know. Uh, I meant to pull that up uh, ahead of time, honestly, but I thought Teamsters president Sean O'Brien had some really good comments about this strike. I mean, about this court case. Um, and maybe we can come back to that because I, I think it's it's worth reading for sure. Yeah, and, and I will say certainly not necessarily in their defense, but it is uh, – there is a um, – 
Brandon Magner is a labor lawyer on Twitter who who has been on the show and and I, and I certainly have respect for his opinion. He says on Twitter, "quote I think the smart money is to read Kagan and Sotomayor's votes as a classic case of SCOTUS horse trading here, probably probably to neutralize Alito's influence on the majority. He was instead relegated to a rather pithy and put off concurrence. And and if you do read Alito's concurrence, he explicitly takes aim at the Garmin precedent and says right. it should be overturned." Uh, whereas, and so he's, uh, he thinks, he thinks, I don't know if he's right or not, but he thinks that Kagan and Sotomayor basically said, okay, look, if we agree with you here, we hold precedent. Right. This, um, yeah. So we'll, maybe, we'll maybe to not. Like a watered know. down version right. of it. Um, well, I, I did want to, like I said, point to the Teamster statement since obviously the Teamsters were, you know, party to this, this court case. Uh, so President Sean, international president, uh, Sean O'Brien said, quote, the political hacks at the Supreme Court have again voted in favor of corporations over working people. These corruptible justices should be ashamed of themselves for throwing out longstanding precedent and legislating from the bench. The ability to strike has been on the books for nearly 100 years, and it's no coincidence that this ruling is coming at a time when workers across the country are fed up and exercising their rights more and more. Make no mistake, this ruling has everything to do with giving companies more power to hobble workers if any attempt is made to fight back against a growing system of corruption. The Supreme Court is not upholding the law, nor is it advancing the American people. Supreme Court justices are ruling on behalf of billionaires alone, the very ones they socialize with at cocktail parties and who they owe their jobs to in the first place. American workers must remember that their right to strike has not been taken away, all workers, union and non-union alike, will forever have the right to withhold their labor. The Teamsters will strike any employer when necessary, no matter their size or the depth of their pockets. Unions will never be broken by this court or any other. Today's shameful ruling is simply one more reminder that the American people cannot rely on their government or their courts to protect them. They cannot rely on their employers. We must rely on each other. We must engage in organized collective action. We can rely only on the protections inherent in the power of our unions. Uh, great comments from the Teamsters. Uh, one more thing before we move on to the next subject, uh, and and that is uh, the topic of, uh, okay, here's, here's the case, here's what it means, here's some context around it. Uh, what do we do with this information? What do we do with this information as union members, as workers? Um, and uh, here I'm going to go back to Jane McAlevey. Um, and, and before I go to her, though, you know, of course, uh, one of the answers is the same as always, and that's to organize, right? Uh, right. To build power on the workplace in your community and um, in the legislature and in Congress and, and all of this kind of stuff is build power, build power, build power, organize, organize, organize. And that's always the answer. Um but uh, but 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 spe specifically, um, she makes a really good suggestion for workers in the private sector where this is uh, where this ruling um, is um, affects you. It doesn't affect federal employees. We're under a different statute. We are under the Federal Labor Relations Act, not the National Labor Relations Act. So uh, this this case does not affect us at all. 
But if you're in the private sector, Jane McAlevey says, uh, one thing workers must do is preemptively propose and win contract language that includes an explicit waiver of the employer's right to take any tortious claims to court. Employers regularly insist that workers waive their rights to sue on a plethora of issues. It's time to use employers' predisposition against court claims against them. Winning anything like that, however, will take the power built through workers taking ownership of their demands and strategy in the negotiations process, choosing to exercise their own right to strike with their co-workers. Um, so, uh, good advice there, and she comes back around to what I said earlier. Organize, organize, organize. Uh, the Zen Education Project is coming on here in five minutes. Before we get to that, though, we've got a quick segment um, that we can get to here about... Um, uh, about uh, um, male Flanagan. <laughs> uh, male Flanagan, for those of you who don't know, is the union uh, voice actor, union English voice actor for Naruto, which is a very popular anime. And um, I was looking for this. I was looking for confirmation of this before uh, before the show today, and I couldn't find it. But um, I believe I read something that said that uh, Naruto is currently the longest-running union anime um, that, that's in production right now. So very cool, very cool stuff like that uh, 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 right there. Uh, so Mel Flanagan, the union voice actor for the English dub of Naruto. Uh, she is also a member of the LGBT community. She is a lesbian. She's married to a woman. And she had a post on Twitter and Instagram <laughs> with uh, Naruto in front of the pride flag, <laughs> and uh, lots of people didn't like it, and um, and she didn't care. She was very... So here, here is a couple of the comments. Wait, are, are you telling me that there were folks possibly being snowflakes? Were, were there folks being triggered by rainbows? <laughs> There Is were, that what you're telling me? There were folks being triggered. Uh, here's a comment from her Instagram uh, uh, comment section. Please don't bring this into anime, into the anime I grew up with. Here's another one. Little kids who might follow this, uh, little kids might follow this, and it's not a good idea. Um, and so she replied, and there were lots more, and she replied to a lot of them. She's she's very funny, and she's very interactive on her social media pages. Um uh, she's also, fun fact, in Not Dead Yet, which is a, um, which is a cable sitcom that uh, my wife and I enjoy. Uh, but so she, she replied to a few of them saying, quote, get off my page, weirdo. <laughs> um, another quote, maybe you should chill with your, maybe you should go chill with your bros and talk it out. Another one, go away, pest. So uh, she is not being cowed by... Uh, anti-gay weirdos in her comment section and more power to her. Um, I love seeing that. Um, yeah. She's, yeah. Uh, she's also been supportive of uh, union voice actor Kyle McCarley uh, in his protests against Crunchyroll who replaced him as the lead voice actor in Mob Psycho 100. Uh, because Crunchyroll did not want to negotiate with SAG-AFTRA. They wouldn't even have a meeting with SAG-AFTRA. Uh, and she was supportive of Kyle McCarley during that um, during that uh, uh, episode. So 
very cool person. Um, very cool seeing her right. fighting with weirdos. Yeah, and, and as always, you know, the answer to bigotry is solidarity. Yes. And, um, you know, and, uh, and again, as always, so much of right-wing reactionary politics is projection. Uh, you know, these are the folks that uh, accuse anyone to the left of Nixon of mm-hmm. being, you know, sensitive snowflakes who are easily triggered. Uh, but while they throw out those accusations, they get upset about T-shirts at Target or commercials of a beer uh, <laughs> or, you know, rainbow flags on Twitter. Uh, it's it's just really quite, um, quite bizarre. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so there we go. Uh, oh, oh. Also, one more thing that that I learned from the comments section. Uh, she ships. Uh, Naruto and Sasuke. Um, so, okay. Adam, you don't know what that means. I don't but, know what that uh, means, and um, I'm but, not sure that I want to know, but, but I, I, hey, I appreciate the interunion solidarity, though, yes. uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I know we've got uh, a couple uh, more things to talk about later in the show, but I do believe our guests from the Zen Education Project are coming on the line, so... Uh, I did want to introduce the Zen Education Project a little bit before we get to uh, Deborah and Greg. So I am a former educator. Longtime listeners know that about me. I taught high school history uh, for a few years and then, you know, transitioned into a, a staff, field staff role representing educators. Um, and as a student of history and a teacher of history, the Zen Education Project has been really, really essential to my work, and I'm, I'm a huge fan. Uh, the Zen Education Project promotes and supports the teaching of people's history in classrooms across the country. Since 2008, the Zen Education Project has introduced students to a more accurate, complex, and engaging understanding of history than is found in traditional textbooks and curricula. And for the past two summers... Uh, Under the banner of the Zen Education Project, teachers have rallied across the country at historic sites to speak out against anti-history education bills and to make public their pledge to teach the truth. The teacher-led rallies have received national media attention and provided a valuable counter-narrative to the oversized coverage of the well-funded anti-CRT movement. Um, And I want to point out a couple of things there. Uh, Alabama, of course, has its own divisive concepts bill, which is currently moving through the legislature. We'll see if it passes. I actually saw something that said it's dead. Okay, so fingers crossed that it remains dead this session. Um, And so in terms of uh, the Zen Education Project and some of the work they're doing, uh, you know, again, on June 10th, 2023, So just next Saturday is their day of action where they're inviting educators, students, parents, and community members to rally across the country, pledge to teach the truth and defend LGBTQ rights. Uh, And one last thing here before I bring Deborah and Greg on, uh, I wanted to point out this quote from Jesse Hagopian, who, fingers crossed, will actually be on the show next week. Jesse said, just as the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare were used to purge teachers from the late 1940s through the early 1960s, the current attacks on what history deniers have labeled critical race theory and gender ideology are directly connected. Uh, So absolutely agree with that. And I believe uh, we're in a situation where the Red Scare never really went away. Uh, it, It just cranks up 
depending on the cir- the circumstances and the conditions, and we are certainly at a cranked up period. So with all that preamble out of the way, I, I do want to introduce our guests. Uh, we've got Deborah from the Zen Education Project, and we have Greg, an educator out in Iowa who is organizing a day of action. Uh, so welcome, y'all. Welcome to the Valley Labor Report. Thanks. Good to be here. Yes, likewise. So if you could, uh, Greg, you start start with a little introduction. Tell us about yourself. Sure. Uh, I, I've been an educator for the last decade, mostly in middle schools. Um, this is a second career for me after working in nonprofits for some time. Um, I've taught at uh, middle schools, uh, Quaker High School, um, uh, the College of Ed uh, at Iowa State for, for a few years, and um, really felt called to teach, um, both because I enjoy working with young people and learning, but also because I see it as a vehicle. Uh, to empower young people and create a better society. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, I'm currently a PhD student uh, in history at the University of Iowa. Oh, wow. After, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, congratulations After, uh, on that. I know that's very, very yeah, tough. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, uh, I, I so agree with you in terms of being an educator. That's what moved me to want to do it, just to try to make a difference in the lives of young people in our community. So uh, I just want to say thank you for what you do. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, a real humbling and honoring um, experience that I've had. Thanks. Awesome. Uh, so, Deborah, how about you introduce yourself and tell us what you do with the Zen Education Project? Sure, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm based in our offices are based here in Washington, D.C., and I'm the director of Teaching for Change, and we co-coordinate the Zen Education Project with the organization Rethinking Schools that's based in Milwaukee, produces a magazine and books. Uh, Which I'm also a big fan of, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, one of those books is Teaching for Black Lives. And Jesse Hagopian, who you just quoted as one of the editors, and we have teacher study groups across the country uh, using that book. Uh, and so with the Zen Education Project, we came together, uh, uh, Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools, about 12 years ago now. and. Uh, decided to make uh, really at the invitation initially of Howard Zinn and a former student of his who wanted to get resources out to teachers to teach people's history. And we put the lessons online, not just with Howard Zinn's book, but with, uh, you know, there are now thankfully countless people's historians and and actually always have been. Um, And uh, the response has just been extraordinary that every year about uh, where I think about 10,000 teachers sign up, and th- those numbers greatly increased after uh, June of 2020, when more people across the country, and in- that included, of course, teachers and administrators, became aware of the need to really um, not just talk about diversity or multiculturalism, but to really look at the history of racism in this country, issues of power and class, and made a really meaningful commitment to do that. Um, and of course, as we saw, the right noticed that as well. <laughs> and uh, that's when um, President, at the time, President Trump held a meeting at the White House and uh, really um, that the proliferation of laws against teaching, honestly, um, you know, started around January of 2021. So we've been both providing resources to teachers and then more recently uh, defending their right to use them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, y'all do a lot. And uh, I got to say, as I mentioned, I used it heavily as a teacher. I used lesson plans. 
the the one that really sticks out in my mind was putting Columbus on trial. We did that in a ninth grade classroom here in, in North Alabama. Uh, I, I learned a lot from the resources available. And even doing this show and uh, talking about labor history, I find your This Day in History section on the website incredibly helpful. And, I, you know, I'm always learning something. And so, you know, for those of you listening, you may not be a teacher. You may not, you know, have a teacher in your life necessarily. Uh, but if you're listening to this program, you're probably interested in labor history, right? So uh, definitely check out their site and, and see if there's anything useful for you and, and push along to other educators that you might know. Uh, so, Greg, could you tell us a little bit about the Zen Education Project's work to you for you as an educator? You know, how either how have you used it or just what does it mean to you, uh, you know, the kind of work that they're doing? Oh, you bet. Yeah. Um, and and not to gush about the work that Zen Ed does, but I think far and away it's one of the best um, curricular resources for educators, especially mm-hmm. at the high school level, especially around history and, and labor uh, and race history in particular. Um, there are many other good resources that that um, I've encountered and used, but um, the way that Zen curriculum encourages students to question and think critically and think about compassion, I think is is really unparalleled as far as um, curricular resource um, outlets that I've seen. Um, so I, I really enjoyed having resources uh, that I could pull from that help students think critically and uh, and empathetically. Right. Absolutely. It's yeah, it's uh, high quality in terms of the engagement, in terms of the questioning, the critical thinking. Uh, the sourcing and and comparing and contrasting sources. So it's, it's it's very you know rigorous instruction, but like you said, it incorporates compassion, it incorporates justice, uh, democracy, uh, and and that's so so important for young people to be exposed to. I believe, um, and that kind of leads into my next question, which is about this Teach Truth Day of Action on June tenth. Uh, I mentioned it at the start. Uh, Greg, tell us a little bit about what you have planned in Iowa. You bet. Uh, we're really excited uh, to be hosting an event in Iowa City, um, responding to the call of the Zen Education Project and the countless other um, co-sponsoring organizations. Um, and I think it will be a really uh, beautiful show of solidarity, uh, both for the educators doing the work, the parents and community members um, who want the best for for the young people, and the students themselves who are um, at least in Iowa, um, facing restrictions uh, on what they might be able to learn in school and who they might be able to be. Um, so uh, I think not only the show of solidarity uh, will be worthwhile, but um, we'll have chances uh, for folks to engage in action, uh, learn more about their own school boards, have a book exchange, uh, write postcards to um, educators and politicians uh, to either offer some encouragement or, or praise um, depending on how they're doing. And uh, of course, a lot of fun and community building as well. We'll have games and uh, photo booth and, and snacks. So uh, I think it should really be um, uh, not just a one-time event, but hopefully uh, something that contributes to a growth of community. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious, what what kind of feedback are you getting from other educators? Uh, overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, we... Um, we decided to 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 organize this 
gosh, a month and a half ago. And everybody we've reached out to has been just so overwhelmingly supportive. Um, even if folks are, are, are going to be out of town, you know, they're asking what we can, what they might do to support, which I think speaks to the sort of hunger that people have uh, to support students and teachers in the face of these relatively unpopular um, and contrived sort of uh, reactionary movements against schools. So, um, yeah, as this well-funded mechanism has has played out in censoring schools, I think there's there's a hunger among students and and parents and um, educators to sort of stand firm for what we know is best for young people. Absolutely, and I I, I hope I hope you're right there, and and I, I love to see this event that you've got going on, and and I hope to see you know many many more all over the country. Uh, so, Deborah, tell us a little bit about why the Zen Education Project put out this call for action and and talk a little bit about some of the, the previous actions y'all have done in recent years that, that have built and led up to this. Yes, thank you. Uh, we launched this uh, in the spring of 2021 when we had uh, first put on a pledge where teachers could pledge to teach the truth because the laws were just proliferating, saying, uh, that they had to lie to students, that they couldn't talk about the history of systemic racism, of institutionalized racism, right. about issues of class or, or um, you know, sexual identity. And so the Teach Truth slogan was a counter to that, um, because as you said, the lessons are more about than just teaching you know, facts. It's really teaching critical thinking. It's encouraging young people to think for themselves about the relevance of history to today. But the, uh, once they started signing the pledge in large numbers and publicly, which then the Daily Wire, you know, a very uh, right-wing outlet went after teachers, started publishing their names on a list and where what communities they were in. And Yeah, I was on that list. That's uh, right. You were on that list. I was and, on that and list. Why. And yeah. uh, then it was circulate, recirculated by a, a far-right extremist group called Eagle Forum here in Alabama, mm -hmm. which is very active. It's essentially like the Tea Party's mod, you know, current iteration, and they're very active in state legislature. And yeah, they circulated that Daily Wire list along with their own uh, rambling preamble letter to it to every state board of education member and, and to various state leaders. Uh, so yeah, they, they, the right wing definitely noticed what we were up to. They, they definitely noticed. And you were even Adam, uh, preached about in a local church. Uh, yes. so the, the preacher was like, we've even got Marxists here, yes. right here in Athens, Alabama. <laughs> yes, that absolutely happened. I, uh, I, I happened to, uh, still substitute teach occasionally on the side and, uh, so I was subbing at, at my wife's school where I, I knew a lot of the students and uh, a young man came up to me on on a Monday and said, you know, Mr. Keller, you were mentioned in our sermon this week. And I was blown away by it. And what it was is the, the pastor had discovered that article from the Daily Wire and, and I guess the repackaging of it by Alabama conservative groups. And uh, yeah, actually uh, preached a sermon about, you know, the evils that were occurring in our classrooms, including, you know, right here in Limestone County with someone named Adam Keller. And, uh, you know, that is, uh, I guess, just a sense of kind of what we're up against uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to, because, you know, just to be really explicit here, what I signed was a pledge to teach the truth, to be honest and real with young people about our conditions 
just to acknowledge reality. Uh, and, you know, that is considered to be controversial uh, or offensive or uh, radical even uh, in this, this day and age. So I think that, you know, in itself kind of speaks to to why y'all are doing what you're doing. And so uh, what are you excited about this year, you know, having built up the last couple of years, some of these events? Right. And I think what we should point out is that exactly as you said, what you pledged was to teach truthfully, which someone shouldn't even have to pledge. That's your job as a teacher. Right. Um, but the right wing, in order to attack that, they couldn't say that teachers had just pledged to teach truthfully. That would sound ridiculous that they were attacking that. So they lied. They said that teachers are pledging to teach CRT, which it doesn't say in the pledge. We could have a longer discussion about that it would actually not be a problem because people, CRT is teaching to be take a critical analysis about racism. Let's hope we're all doing that. But it's not, um, but it doesn't mention CRT in the pledge. And literally every one of these Daily Wire and Eagle Form statements has said that that's what teachers have pledged. So they're encouraging communities to threaten teachers uh, based on a lie, which mm -hmm. would uh, sort of highlight what you said earlier is that McCarthyism was not an era, it's still here. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that teachers reached out and said signing the pledge wasn't enough. We need, the media is just regurgitating all the, the right-wing talking points about CRT and they're not helping to make visible both the amount of support there is for teaching honestly nor what's at threat. And so that's why we decided to suggest that people go to historic sites um, and say, look, this is the history in our community that we could not teach honestly about uh, with these laws. This is this is what specifically what is at threat. Um, and so the last two years, people have picked sites all over the country, gathered there. We've also suggested people could gather at a bookstore, at a library, because as we know with the proliferation of book bans that just um, being able to read a book is being threatened. Mm -hmm. And uh, this year we've got people, for example, and this is actually the second year they did this last year as well, gathering, for example, at Stone Mountain, the largest Confederate memorial in the world. And so teachers are gathering there, they're taking a walk, they're doing a teach-in, what's the truth of that history? And they're giving out copies of a wonderful new children's book called That Flag that looks at the history of the and what the reality is of the Confederate flag. Um, we've got people gathering in um, Boston at the uh, Black Panther House, looking at the history of the Black Panthers. Um, you know, in, in uh, New Jersey, they're gathering at the House of Thomas Fortune Cultural Center at a Harriet Tubman statue. They're gathering in various places in New Jersey. Florida, we have, I think now five events, one of wow. them, um, yeah, there are uh, folks, you know, a lot of looking at the history and various sites, one being the site of the Rosewood Massacre and a descendant of the massacre who's 84 is going to be reading a children's book that she's written that'll be coming out later this month. Um, Richmond, Virginia, they're gathering at a sacred African burial ground and doing a book swap there. Um, so there, people are gathering at places where the laws are specifically saying this history can't be taught and shining a light on what is being threatened, what young people won't be able to talk about, learn about in school. Um, you know, the right wing loves to say that uh, they're being indoctrinated, but really they're being indoctrinated if they don't learn this history because young people are coming to school with questions. They, they, they see what's going on in the world around them and they, they have questions. And the only way to, we would argue is to help 
or one of the ways to help answer those questions is to look at history. What happened before? Uh, who benefited? Who lost? How did people organize? Um, and then what can we apply from that today? And that's that's the threat. I know as we face issues around climate change, around voting suppression, uh, you know, around police brutality, that's that's what the right wants to suppress is any discussion or understanding of those issues. Yeah, and, and I, for me, I think what it boils down to is the facts are on our side and not theirs. That makes them dangerous. Uh, and, and I think, like you said, young people have questions um, because they look around the world they are curious. They want to know, how did we end up here? You know, why are things the way they are? Uh, and, and that's why the authentic teaching of history is so critical, I think, to a democratic society uh, for folks to be able to fully participate as members of their community to know where they came from and to know how we got where we are at, the struggles that came before us, the, the wins and the losses. Uh, and, and yeah, that's the history that, that uh some on the right are trying to suppress um, to the extent that, yeah, being being truthful as an educator is is a liability or a danger. And so, you know, uh, Greg, I wanted to ask your opinion. How do you feel in this current environment as a teacher, uh, particularly, you know, trying to teach history, social studies, you know, areas like this that that have been under attack? You know, what what is it? What's that like now? Because I've been out of the classroom for a few years, and this has definitely escalated since then. So I'm curious, just kind of how does that weigh on you as an educator? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. Thanks for asking. Um, so uh, probably what is revealing are some experiences that I have had this last year, especially um, that have been picked up in the Washington Post and Slate, um, where I... Um, got kind of so much pushback from a, a local politician I met with um, my superintendent and, and asked if I could teach that that slavery was wrong, uh, to which she sort of equivocated, um, feeling, of course, the pressure from local um, conservative politicians. And so that, uh, yeah, it, it was really intense. Um, and, and that, along with other factors, being advised to dead name students and, um, and, and do things that I know are harmful for young people, uh, drove me out of the classroom, um, which was really, really a hard um, decision. Uh, um, I feel like teaching is my calling, but but I'm not alone in that. I know, brother, uh, I'm right there with you. I, I, yeah, I, right. I know that yeah. feeling where, yeah, I mean, because yeah. I feel like that was my calling as well, and I miss right. it. And um, you know, I know that I will probably never be allowed to teach in a public school classroom, at least not in the South not or you know not not in my home state and uh so yeah i mean that's what you're experiencing i think is way too common and it's a it's a deep hurt it's a hurt right yeah absolutely and and then it, it hurts students too because um you know if they're denied uh basic factual knowledge about history or, or the world um they are not as able to engage as democratic citizens and, and if we want schools to be incubators of democracy which I would hope we all do, uh, we're really depriving young people of that opportunity and educators of that opportunity with these with these censorious laws. I think right. So so there's yeah there's there's harm on many levels that's being inflicted. Um, I think with with these sort of restrictive uh, laws and book bans and whatnot. Absolutely. <clears throat> well, I wanted to give both of y'all a chance as we wrap up here with 
just an opportunity to share your message to Alabama and the South's public school teachers. Um, you know, I imagine that the participation in this day of action is a little bit less in the South and, and other parts of the country. Um, and I imagine there's probably fear. I, in fact, I know there's fear. I, I've talked to some teachers here who, you know, they're very fearful of, of being put on these lists. They're fearful of uh, being associated with anything like this, frankly. And so I'm curious, um, you know, whoever wants to jump in first, Greg, Deborah, but if you could just share, what are your, your parting thoughts and messages for Alabama's educators when it comes to this issue in particular? Sure, uh, I'll jump in first. Um, yeah, I, I, I would wanna say first, um, keep doing what you're doing uh, to the educators. It's, it's so important and um, the impact that you're having uh, ripples out in ways that that we can't see. Um, and so what you're doing is really important and keep at it. And, and if um, you feel like you're alone, you are not. Uh, there are many people, if not immediately in your in your classroom or school, uh, more broadly, uh, who are supporting you and wanting you to continue this crucially important work. Um, so um, also to take care of yourself. Um, as you know, Adam, it can it can feel sort of harried and, and hard. Um, mm. Uh, on on the front lines uh, of um, of this uh, thing, and so uh, keep taking care of yourself. Keep leaning on one another, um, and and keep doing the work that you're doing. Amen, amen. Deborah, what what about you? Do you have any thoughts and or just words to share with Alabama's educators in particular? Sure, I'd echo everything Greg said, and then also add. I think another lesson from history that the right does not want taught is that everyone we uphold who made a difference in history didn't know at the time that there was any certainty that that was going to happen. And so I think mm. we always have to continue the work that we know is right, regardless of whether we can see the light at the end of the tunnel there. Um, for example, we've been sharing the book, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, uh, which is now also a documentary film on Peacock. And she really, uh, you know, at Highlander Center, just before the Montgomery bus boycott, expressed that she had no confidence that anything good could come out of the work in Montgomery. She was, um, you know, did not, would not have forecast that people would have uh, joined a boycott for 381 days um, and really changed the face of this country. So I think we do the work. And we have to just remember if you're on the right side that there are people with you and it will seem um, uh, you know, endless, but that hopefully there will be change. And we hope that many of you, you know, who are doing important work in the classroom can, can wait it out and that we will then do everything we can to mobilize people to support you. That's why we encourage people all over the country to show up at these events because teachers really need to know that they're not alone. It's been it's hard enough been teaching these past few years in the midst of a pandemic and then to have to defend democracy. Um, the teachers should not be alone in that task. Um, and there is for teachers in Alabama who are close to Montgomery, one of the June 10th events is in Montgomery at 1977 books. If you go to uh, um, teachtruthaction.org, uh, we list all the events there. So we really hope folks can show up. There's gonna be a teaching about the history of redlining uh, there's going to be free books, banned books. There's going to be lunch. Um, it should be really a, a really fabulous event. 
Um, well, that's fantastic. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. And I, yeah, I really appreciate both of y'all's comments there. I think, um, you know, the key is solidarity and building solidarity amongst educators and between educators, parents, students, and the broader community, uh, building that solidarity amongst each other to defend the teaching profession, to defend public education as a concept, to defend what's right for our students, and to defend the truth. Uh, and I think, I think uh, the, the kind of work that y'all are doing, uh, both of you through Zen Education Project, is really, really important, and I really appreciate it. And um, it, did y'all have any uh, anything else? Any final plugs? Uh, I know you mentioned the website. If you want to uh, just remind folks, where can they get plugged in if they're looking for an event or if they want to possibly organize an event? Sure. Uh, teachtruthaction.org uh, will get you to the page where you can learn about all the events that are already scheduled. Or as you said, people can pick a, a site on their own, take a sign. Um, even one or two people uh, on June 10th, we encourage people to do that. And then also the Zen Ed Project, we do provide lessons, resources, support for study groups. We have monthly online classes with people's historians, because uh, it really is about also respecting the intellectual capacity, curiosity of young people, as you said, and also teachers that, right. uh, you know, this is really what gets dismissed by the right and sadly, sometimes too often by the left, that um, young people are curious, they can think critically, they have questions, and uh, our future really depends on their ability to engage in those uh, kind of inquiries and questions today. Absolutely. And and uh, the work that y'all are doing to help facilitate that is very, very critical. So I want to thank you both, Deborah and Greg. Greg, best of luck with your event in Iowa City next weekend. Uh, wishing you all the best and really appreciate your efforts there. So thank you both for what you're doing uh, and look look forward to uh, hopefully talking with Jesse next weekend to hear more about how the days of action are actually, uh, you know, unfolding across the country. Excellent. Yeah, thank you for the work you do too. Really, yeah, really appreciate, appreciate the conversation. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. Yes. Public education weekend. and public media, so important. Thank you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, and we're going to stick together and keep keep doing the right thing, mm -hmm. keep fighting the good fight. So thanks, y'all. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. All right, folks. Um, the uh, Here's another, um, here's something else that happened recently. Uh, Jennifer Bates was fired yesterday yeah you know kind of talking fired. about retaliation and mm -hmm. targeting uh it was something that sort of was a in the back back channel of that conversation right yeah. is something we're, we're all concerned about um and you know i think unfortunately here's yet another case of where a worker stands up for what's right uh, and is retaliated against. Absolutely. And and this is something that I uh, either said when we opened up the show or went on, on Twitter. But, I, I mean, she is, I think, the second most visible Amazon employee in the union effort, uh, I think, behind only Chris Smalls. I, I can't think of another Amazon employee who more people would have seen and know, right? Uh, I mean, and she's she's certainly not as well known as Chris Smalls. I think Chris Smalls isn't quite a household name, but but a lot of people know him. Uh, but but certainly, I think she's got to be a, a, a second. 
and um, and no doubt there is a and that creates a big incentive for Amazon to try to make an example of her and try to get rid of her. Uh, and this isn't even the first time that uh, Amazon has fired a high-profile Alabama union organizer. They fired last month. Um, uh, uh, oh shoot, I forgot his name. Was it Daryl? Yes, Daryl mm-hmm. Richardson. Sorry, I don't know why I forgot. Daryl Richardson. They fired him last month under kind of similar uh, circumstances. But um, RWDSU released a, a, a press statement yesterday saying that uh, the news comes shortly after Bates hit three years of service this May, which is an ominous number for Amazon workers whose pay scales top out after three years. Wow. Um, So not only is there an incentive for them to try to get rid of her because of her association with the union campaign, but also there's an incentive for them to get rid of her because she would now be among, you know, some of the most highly paid employees at the Bessemer facility. Uh, uh, so they could get rid of her and hire somebody as a first year and pay them less. Uh, She has long struggled, according to RWDSU, with debilitating injuries from working at Amazon and had taken workers' compensation leave recently to tend to these injuries at Amazon's recommendation, according to RWDSU. Uh, Upon Amazon telling her to return to work, the company refused to make adjustments to her work schedule and work type, despite despite repeated doctor's letters and review by Amazon's own, quote, wellness center. Uh, And I remember talking to her. I don't think that we talked about this on the show, but I remember seeing her and actually talking to her about um, about how that was an issue, how, you know, she has some uh, some injuries and some disabilities that that uh, really she ought to be given reasonable accommodation for, and yet they put her on the line in some of the most physically taxing uh, work environments that they have in the Bessemer facility, as opposed to something else where she could uh, perhaps sit down. I, I mean, I remember her telling me that she went from uh, quality control to the line uh, um, as a result of the campaign, she alleges. Nonetheless, uh, back to this press release, nonetheless, Bates returned to work uh, the extreme shifts amid extreme pain and swelling only to be shortly told to go home by Amazon and get a new doctor's review before returning to work. Just days after returning for a second time, she received notice that her access to the A to Z app had been disabled. At issue, according to a difficult-to-reach HR representative, was her unpaid time-off tally for which she has ample documentation. Only after Bates' tenacious inquiries, hours on the phone, uh, was Bates even informed she had potentially been terminated. Despite numerous attempts to provide the necessary paperwork, she has yet to hear from the company about her appeal. Um, So this is, you know, this is another one of the issues that they have with Amazon is that so much of this process is just automated uh, as opposed to an actual human. And, you know, Stuart Applebaum says that this is this is something that could easily be rectified by a human um, if, you know, if they actually wanted to bring her back, if this is indeed a a genuine kind of an innocent effort by a computer, uh, then a human taking a look at these files could, could rectify it. But you know, there's reason to believe that, uh, that maybe the error or the refusal to, to fix the error isn't so innocent. Uh, Stewart said in the statement, what is clear today is that Amazon terminated one of the most public pro union worker leaders we've seen in a generation. 
Jennifer Bates is being subjected to termination by AI due to a glitch in the company's own software. Today is just another in a litany of examples of how this company will stop at nothing to stifle workers' efforts to unionize. Amazon blatantly broke the law throughout the campaign, knowing that any potential penalty would be insignificant. Today's news is, shockingly, just another case of Amazon's misconduct in a growing mountain of unfair labor practices, objections, and charges against Amazon. The company violated the law in the first election and did so again in the rerun election and now is firing union leaders in the facility to all but extinguish any embers of union support in the facility. Uh, he continues and says, We urge the NLRB to carefully review Jennifer's case when it's filed and the countless other issues at hand to ensure that no comp company, not even one with the bottomless pockets of Amazon, is allowed to act above the law. And that's a very, you know, that's such an important thing that, uh, that we don't allow what has been the, the case for decades now, um, big multi-billion dollar corporations getting to act like the law just doesn't apply to them. Uh, and, and that really needs to be rectified. Jennifer said in the statement, I went to work for Amazon because I believed in the future world of work, but at Amazon there is no future for workers like me. I've tirelessly worked for Amazon in Bessemer, Alabama since it opened. Everything hurts and it's permanently changed my life forever. But I stayed because I believe Amazon can be better and I believe with a union we can build a brighter future for workers across the country, across the company. I've given my back to Amazon these past three years. I've given my arms and shoulders to Amazon these past three years. Now I've given every fiber of my soul into organizing Amazon these past three years. For them to treat me like this is unfathomable, but let me be clear, Amazon, your termination of my employment will not stifle workers organizing, for when you fire leaders, it only brings more people ignited into the movement. We are a movement, we will not be stopped, and I know my union, recognized or not by you, has my back. We'll fight this, I will not be silenced, and we will not be stopped, said Jennifer Bates, newly terminated Amazon uh, Bessemer, Alabama worker. So very powerful statement, both from Stuart Applebaum and from uh, and from Jennifer Bates in a you know really really disgusting story. Um, but of course, obviously, sending all the love and solidarity and support to Jennifer and everybody else at Bessemer uh, Amazon. Absolutely, thank you, Jennifer, for for your fight, and uh, I'm sorry for what you're going through. It's a shame. And uh, so, yeah, definitely sending our love and solidarity to RWDSU, to Jennifer, your family, uh, wishing you all the best in this fight ahead, because I know it's a, it's a long fight ahead, uh, but I know you'll still you'll stay strong. Yeah. Uh, so, Adam, talk to us about uh, your union's fight against the robots. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, so I did want to mention this, that. You know, AI has been in the news a little bit, in particular with this Hollywood writer strike, and it's coming up because it is one of the issues that, you know, is at the table. It's one of the issues where uh, there's some, you know, disagreement there because industry is wanting to shift towards AI and replace humans with robots, uh, more or less, or computers. So, uh, my union, IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, has announced the creation of the IATSE Commission on Artificial Intelligence. 
And the commission will bring together IATSE members and representatives at all levels, as well as external experts to guide the union's approach to the challenges and opportunities presented by the advent of artificial intelligence in the entertainment industry. As AI continues to evolve and proliferate, it is critical that our union is at the forefront of understanding its impact on our members and industry, said President Matthew Loeb. Just as when silent films became talkies, and as the big screen went from black and white to full color, the IATSE Commission on Artificial Intelligence is part of our commitment to embracing new technologies. We will work to equip our members with the skills to navigate this technological advancement and to ensure that the transition into this new era prioritizes the interest and well-being of our members and all entertainment workers. The Commission will engage in a comprehensive study of AI technologies with a particular focus on how they may reshape the landscape of entertainment industry jobs under IATSE's jurisdiction. It will also consider how contract provisions, legislation, and training programs can be adapted to ensure the fruits of increased productivity through AI are shared equitably among all stakeholders. The Commission will include representatives from across IATSE's jurisdiction, as well as subject matter experts from academia and the tech industry, it will begin its work immediately with a report of its findings and recommendations to be presented at the 2023 Midsummer Meeting of IATSE's General Executive Board held at the end of July. So, just a reminder, IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, uh, represents over 168,000 technicians, artisans, and craftspersons in the entertainment industry across the United States and Canada and its territories and our folks work in live events, motion picture and television production, broadcast and trade shows across North America. So uh, I'm very interested in how this commission plays out and uh, I'm interested to see what they recommend in July. Uh, I was a little surprised, it's gonna be a pretty quick turnaround it seems like. They mm -hmm. just announced this uh, in the last week or two, I believe, uh, so I'm glad to see my union is taking it seriously, and I hope that all of our unions are paying attention to AI and what's happening with AI and how it could impact our employment, uh, how it could impact the loss of jobs, the changing of jobs, potentially the improvement of jobs, right? Uh, like any new technology, the devil's in the details, and in the ownership, mm. who owns and controls the AI. Uh, that's very, very important to how it's going to impact ordinary working people. So, yeah, uh, appreciate my union doing that. Look forward to hearing the results of the commission for sure. And, you know, I would imagine that uh, in IATSE, we are probably not as directly threatened by the AI as like the Hollywood writers are, right? Because it's easier for the, the computers to write a script than it is to uh, hang a light. Hmm. But... Um, that said, it impacts all of us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's a good segue into an update on the uh, WGA strike. Um, they uh, Adam Conover did an interview on the Majority Report yesterday. Uh, it's a good interview, very informative. Um, and he said that uh, you know they're into week five now, week five right. of the strike. Uh, Sam mentioned that in two thousand and seven or two thousand eight when the last writer's strike happened it lasted for three months 
And, uh, you know, back then, the level of solidarity, even within the writers' union, much less between the writers' union and other entertainment unions or other unions generally, was not as high as it is today. And so this really has the capacity to turn into a long, uh, a long drawn-out fight. Um, so, uh, you know, if you are, you know, that we do have a few... Um, we do have a few listeners from, you know, Los Angeles and New York. So if you are in one of those areas, then you can go to the WGA website and check out their list of picket lines. You can also, um, donate to, there's like an entertainment workers fund, uh, for workers that are put out of work by the strike, but that are not striking, if that makes sense. Right. Because, the, you know, because, of uh, uh, the writing not happening, there are going to be some other people that that are not going to be able to work, and they're not striking. And so the WGA has a fund uh, for those people. You know, since they're not getting strike benefit checks, uh, they're going to be getting you know uh, checks from this fund. So uh, the WGA has raised a million dollars in that fund, and so if you want to donate, um, then then you can do that. I think that's on their website as well. Uh, bef- by the time this clip comes out. And I do want to, um, and and I'll ask, uh, I'll ask Joe to, you know, uh, break this up uh, with the results when the clip comes out. But uh, in a couple of days, on June fifth, the uh, actors' union is going to be announcing the results of their strike authorization vote, um, which is uh, which is going to be very important. On June 5th, uh, and now the strike authorization vote is, that's not, you know, so if the vote comes in at yes, that's not going to mean that they will go on strike. That just means that the negotiating team of the Screen Actors Guild, when they go to the table with these companies, they have the authority the members are giving them the authority to call a strike if negotiations stall. So, um, you know, there is a potential for this to become a strike not only with the writers, but maybe even with the actors. Uh, and that would, uh, and, and then even, uh, you know, even after that, I think that the, the next negotiations coming up are with the actors. And then after that, there are negotiations with the directors. And then after that, with the producers. Um, and I think all of them are happening this year before, uh, before 2024, if I remember correctly. So, uh, this could c- turn into a pretty big thing and, and just totally shut down Hollywood. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, but yeah, keep an eye out. June 5th is when the actors are going to be announcing their strike authorization vote. Yeah, absolutely. And um, kind of on those lines, I want to point to a joint statement that was just issued this past week uh, with SAG-AFTRA, the Teamsters, IATSE, and the Writers Guild all joining together to make a statement in solidarity with the Directors Guild of America. So from the joint statement, as the Directors Guild of America's negotiations with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, AMPTP, enter their final scheduled week, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, the Teamsters, Hollywood Basic Crafts, Teamsters Local 399, IBEW Local 40, Lyona Local 724, OPCMIA, Local 755, and UA, Local 78, the Writers Guild of America East, the Writers Guild of America West, and the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, stand alongside our sisters, brothers, and kin in the DGA in their pursuit of a fair contract. We believe in a Hollywood where every worker is valued and their contributions recognized, whether their labor is on or off screen. 
A fair contract for directors does not benefit just a select few. It uplifts every worker in the film and television industry and acknowledges the interconnected nature of our work. We call on the AMPTP to immediately negotiate a fair agreement that addresses the Directors Guild of America's unique priorities in good faith. As eyes around the world again turn towards the negotiation table, we send a clear message to the AMPTP. Our solidarity is not to be underestimated. The Hollywood guilds and unions stand united, and we stand strong. And it, again, signed by the president of IATSE, the president uh, or the uh, president of WGA East, the president of WGA West, uh, national executive director and chief negotiator of SAG-AFTRA, and uh, Lindsay Doherty, who is uh, Teamsters vice president out in Hollywood. So I uh, really think that's important that these unions are joining together and really uh, coordinating and trying to help each other out through these struggles and these, you know, negotiations that are happening back to back. Uh, but it's not just in Hollywood. I want to point that out as well. Um, the And this comes from a an article actually by the Hollywood Reporter, interestingly enough. Uh, of course, this being an entertainment strike, entertainment industry news is sort of following it a little bit. So uh, an article came out this week with the Hollywood Reporter about a WGA picket shutting down the Atlanta production of a Peacock show called Hysteria. Hmm. And the action marks the first time union members have stopped a production in Georgia so far. So hmm. uh, this was written by Rick Porter, who wrote, The Writers Guild of America has opened a new front and its targeted pickets of TV and movie productions, Georgia. Striking writers on Wednesday picketed outside sound stages in Atlanta, where Peacock's upcoming series Hysteria is in production. The action is the first time striking writers and their allies have used targeted pickets to shut down filming in Georgia. Sources confirm that production on Hysteria, which is a 1980s set thriller set against the backdrop of that decade's satanic panic, has hit pause, though it's not clear for how long. Five weeks into the strike, the Guild has shifted its strategy somewhat to encompass both the targeted actions against productions and pickets outside studio lots and corporate offices in Los Angeles and New York. We want to disrupt as much as we can, veteran showrunner and WGA East strike captain Warren Late told The Hollywood Reporter. The Guild realizes that this is a pretty powerful thing. If the whole point is to empty the programming pipeline, the AMPTP knows they have to come back to the bargaining table. The quickest way to empty the pipeline is not to wait until all the shows are shot, but to stop the shows from shooting. The targeted pickets aim to stop other industry unions from crossing lines. Teamsters and IATSE members have honored the lines, leading to shutdowns on productions including Showtime's The Shy in Chicago and Billions in New York, Apple TV's Loot in Los Angeles, and feature films Good Fortune from Lionsgate and Thunderbolts from Marvel. Adding Atlanta to the list of targets widens the geographic scope for the Guild. Studios can lose $200,000 to $300,000 per day when filming shuts down, and multiple executives acknowledge to The Hollywood Reporter that the targeted strike actions have been, quote, effective. The Writers Guild and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers representing the media companies have yet to resume negotiations. The AMPTP is currently in talks with the Directors Guild of America, whose contract is up at the end of June, 
while Actors Union SAG-AFTRA is conducting a strike authorization vote among its members. Its agreement with the studios is also up on June 30th. So again, that was Rick Porter with The Hollywood Reporter. Nice to see Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Nice to yeah. see uh, WGA <clears throat> shutting stuff down in Georgia. Georgia has become a you know a, a big site of TV and film production, and and so uh, love to see that. Hope that means uh, my Yahtzee uh, sisters and brothers out there, and everybody else in Atlanta can join in and and really help shut down these productions and and lend strength to this Hollywood writer strike. Uh, yeah, I mean, if they if if they start regularly picketing in Georgia, and I, and I'm not seeing it for their pickets picket locations for the next week. I did go to their website and check it out, and I don't see any at least advertised pickets in Atlanta. Uh, but if they begin doing that regularly, then uh, then you know you and you and I can probably uh, take a road trip. Take a road trip. Yeah. Take a road trip. I'd I'd be down for a road trip to a picket in Atlanta. So. Yeah, anyone listening in Georgia, if you uh, yeah, if you hear about stri- uh, uh, picket lines over there in Atlanta with the WGA, holler at us, and we might uh, definitely do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we got a couple more segments. I do want to make sure that we get to this this legislative update. Um, the uh, Alabama legislators are legislating all over us, uh, but it's. <laughs> It's not as bad as it as it could have been. A lot of stuff today. Not as is the that's kind of bad, but not as awful as yeah, it could have that, been. That's like a theme of of the show today. Uh, bad, but but not the worst. So um, and and there are actually a couple of not just bad, but uh, but good things that passed. And one of those is the driver's license bill that we have kind of uh, been following a little bit over the last couple of years. Uh, that makes it so that um, your driver's license cannot be suspended just for lack of payment of fees. Uh, And that's very important because uh, that has not been the case for a while. And so there are, there have been thousands of Alabamians who have had their license taken away from them, not because of any dangerous driving, not because they were drunk behind the wheel, uh, not because of any of that, just because they hadn't given $100 to the court or something like that, which is absolutely crazy, unjustifiable, uh, particularly when you think about, okay, so uh, if they owe you $100 or $200 or $1,000, how exactly do you expect them to pay you back if they don't have a car in Alabama? It's not like we live in, uh, you know, uh, D.C. or New York or Boston where there is a semi-reliable public transportation. If you live in Alabama, you have to have a car. Uh, almost, you know, all of us. Uh, there there may be, be like 1% of people who live in the state who actually don't need a car. But 99% of us who have to work have to have a car. And if you're not able to use it or you're not able to use it legally, you're not going to be able to make money. And then your debt is just going to increase and increase right. and increase. And, and inevitably what happens is, of course, they risk it. They drive mm-hmm. without the license. Then they get pulled over. Now, all of a sudden, they're getting arrested or yeah. they've got additional criminal charges. It's just a really vicious cycle. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do want to say 
that there was some good news coming out of the Alabama mm-hmm. legislature. For all the bad news, and there's plenty of it, believe me, you can go back and listen to pretty much anything we've been talking about all spring. Uh, but this is a good bill. SB 154, it was sponsored by Will Barfoot, who is a Republican out of Pike Road, uh, right outside Montgomery. And so basically, individuals will now be allowed to miss one court appearance or two payments on their fines and fees before their licenses can be suspended. Mm. And courts can currently suspend license for the very first missed payment. Uh, So this law will take effect on October 1st. This was a significant victory for criminal justice reform groups who have made this a a real, you know, focus uh, this year and in previous years. Uh, In particular, I want to highlight Alabama Appleseed. Uh, Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice has been really on top of this bill. They've been pushing this very, very hard. Uh, they almost got it through last year, and it fell just short at the very last minute. Uh, so they worked and worked and worked to get this bill uh, across the finish line, and it's going to provide relief to thousands yeah. of, of low-income working-class people in the state. So shout-out to Alabama Appleseed, and credit to these legislators for mm-hmm. you know being willing to actually hear out logic and reason and have some degree of empathy, perhaps even, uh, you know, shocking that I know that that's pretty shocking to, to think that legislators might could have empathy. But uh, evidently, right. some of them had enough common sense to pass this bill. Uh, yep. It is less than what advocates originally sought. Uh, they wanted to make sure that people could keep their licenses if they made most of their payments for the year. And, you know, if they missed one court appearance or whatever um, and it would have made it easier to have it reinstated but there were multiple amendments to the bill to get it through so of course it got watered down but again this is going to reduce the the number of suspensions of people's driver's licenses over missed court dates and and failure to pay fines so I think it's really a a great great, uh, little chip of progress there so that was good news. Uh, the other, I guess you could say fairly good news, would be there are two tax cuts coming for working people uh, that we've discussed on the show, uh, one of which uh, the Anthony Daniels overtime tax cut, which was supported by you know a pretty broad group of folks, you mm-hmm. know, labor and business really supported it. Um, and, you know, like we've said on the show, it's it's a fine bill. Uh, I'll happily take a tax cut on my overtime pay. Uh, as uh, Brother Joe Marshall pointed out, though, in a way, in a roundabout way, it's sort of incentivizing people. It's incentivizing the use of overtime, which isn't right. necessarily a pro-worker position, right? Because the pro-worker position is that you should be able to work a normal full week and make enough to, to survive and thrive. And you shouldn't have yeah. to get over 40 hours a week. And if people are regularly working over 40 hours a week, you probably need to hire more help. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, create more jobs. So I'm sensitive to those arguments. I'm also sensitive to the argument that uh, none of this revenue is being replaced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
Well, they did right before they passed it. I don't. Did you see the amendment that they added to it? They capped the benefit at uh, uh, they capped the exemption at two thousand dollars a year, uh, which is not capping the benefit at two thousand dollars a year. That is capping the income that is exempt to two thousand dollars a year, which is not a whole lot. Um, and that effectively limits the annual benefit to a hundred dollars. Uh, really, I yeah. didn't realize it had been been whittled down to that yeah so um uh so so that is actually what passed yesterday it is now on governor ivy's desk for signature all indications are that she is going to sign it uh but yeah that is a pretty weird uh a pretty weird thing to uh to to say is uh, that only two thousand dollars of your overtime pay is tax exempt but um yeah yeah that's that's interesting. Um, but but you did mention that 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 about it incentivizing overtime pay, and I saw that on um, you know the Alabama Political Reporter and their reporting on it, and they said that actually they said that th- they heard from unions that it will quote incentivize the state's hardest workers, uh, and I hope that that was maybe a misinterpretation of what they heard from the unions because I totally agree that we should absolutely not be incentivizing people to work more overtime. We should be incentivizing companies to pay people adequately in 40 hours and create more jobs. And uh, we should be working to create ways for employees to have more freedom from work, from work, not, uh, uh, not creating uh, more ways for, for them to try to stay. Uh, David, um, friend of the show, co-founder did push back a little bit saying that, you know, this benefit isn't, enough to actually incentivize and and I probably agree with that especially with this cap right. uh, you know nobody is going to work uh overtime for $100 a put uh, a max of $100 a year right nobody's going to work overtime to get that it's just going to be a nice little uh bonus for people who work a lot who work too much you know frankly yeah. uh so you know I I agree with that but uh but definitely don't want to be creating those kinds of issues. Yeah, and and it's um so it's it's very mild. It's very mild. It doesn't do a whole lot. It's yeah. got pros and cons and it's hard to feel super strongly about any of it, frankly. Yeah. Um and so, you know, this is the this is the groundbreaking bill, you know, that that's coming out of the legislature. Um yeah, it just seems kind of paltry compared to the great needs of working people in Alabama. Uh, we have such needs here. We, we rank at or near the bottom on every aspect of our quality of life. Our people are too poor. Our people are working too hard for too little wages. Uh, we have starvation wages in this state. We have corporate handouts in this state. And um, yeah, I mean, so I'm not going to be super thrilled. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll take it Yeah. Uh, for what it is. Uh, and now, on a related note, the grocery tax cut mm-hmm. is is finally happening after, like, literal decades of pushing right. for this. Yeah. So, you know, I give a lot of credit to Alabama Arise mm-hmm. for this because they have been one of the, you know, champions of this bill. Uh, it's, you know, it's not a full repeal right away like a lot of folks wanted. It's phased in. Um it's got some caps and protections there, so it does. It did try to address some of the concerns about, you know, the education trust fund budget, because ultimately grocery taxes, you know, fund schools, 
so there were some, uh, you know, some provisions, some changes there. So it's not going to be an immediate tax cut, which also means, you know, it's not something you're going to notice um, right away uh, or even in a big way necessarily. But I agree with what Alabama Rise Executive Director Robin Hyden said that um, it's a step in the right direction mm. for our upside down tax system. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and like the overtime tax tax cut, this is, uh, you know, this is a very <laughs> measured thing. It's not a complete elimination of the grocery tax. It's not even a complete elimination of the state's portion of the grocery tax, which is 4%. It is a gradual elimination of half of the state's grocery tax that does not go into effect if revenue into the education trust fund falls below an annual growth of like 3%. Right. So this is very I mean, it's a very like Democrat type of proposal. Right. You know, I mean, the the, the thing about like what was it? Kamala's uh, uh, student debt forgiveness plan when she was running for president was something like, you know, if you um, jump through three hurdles and check four boxes. <laughs> yeah. You yeah know, if you, you might are uh, right. If, if you are from an underprivileged community and you have more than twenty thousand dollars in student debt and you work for five years in a rural area with, you know, yeah. I mean, it's you got to read a damn essay to figure out then, if you qualify. Right, right, right. I mean, this is very much kind of in that vein. It's like, you know, I mean, a 2% tax cut over four years if the Education Trust Fund continues to grow at 3% per year. Right. And, and if it doesn't grow in 3% in one year, then the, that half a percent tax cut for that year is stalled. So, I mean, it's just very, very, you know. Yeah, right. and, and I'll, I'll say this, you know, I it's no secret, I, I'm pretty radical and militant with my politics, but I also am someone who, who is capable of compromise and, and recognizes that you can't let, uh, yep. you know, the you, you, you can't abandon something decent just for the sake of perfection. And so I get that the grocery tax cut is not ideal, uh, but it's getting passed. And so mm -hmm. that is, that is progress. And, and, it is long past time to end regressive taxes in this state on people's food, mm. people's groceries. Uh, so I think it's a step in the right direction. Uh, what I've always rejected is this idea that, well, you can get some modest tax relief or you can fund your schools, mm. right? right? You know, like you have to pick between the two. And, right. uh, you know, we'll see how, what kind of impact this has on education funding and we'll see uh you know these two maybe aren't super alarming by themselves but then you factor in the rebates that are being given mm. you factor in you know tens of millions in tax cuts that were passed last year that are you know right. we're just now starting to see the impacts of and it will add up and and the economy right. will crash uh right. the education budget has been uh you know in really good shape comparatively because of rising sales tax revenues and through, uh, you know, one-time federal infusions. And so that's not guaranteed to last. The feds aren't going to be giving us any more money like that, and certainly not anytime soon. And, uh, you know, record uh, collections of sales taxes probably isn't going to continue indefinitely, would be my guess. So yeah. all that to say... Uh, there were a couple of good things to happen 
in the Alabama legislature. And I credit the hard work of activists and organizers who really are persistent because, and I, I heard this from, from Dana uh, with Alabama Appleseed. He was asked, you know, what do you credit this success for with his driver's license bill? And he said, persistence. Mm -hmm. We just wouldn't let it go. We kept right. trying. And when one line of argument didn't work, we tried a different line of argument. Uh, you know, when we we would just go legislator by legislator, district by district and, and chip away at it. So I give a lot of credit to the activists and the organizations that have fought hard to make this, you know, what we admit is incremental progress. Uh, but we'll take it. And I hope that it starts conversations moving forward about how we really can transform this upside down taxation system in the state of Alabama, where, you know, the wealthy pay so little and the working class pays so much. Uh, I think we can change that. We can do better in this state. And I hope that, you know, this gets us a little bit closer down the road to that. Uh, you ready to call it, or you want to? I hit think it? I no, think right, right. I think you know we've yeah. ran a little long today. We've had some uh, good interviews. Uh, you know, I know we ran long with uh, uh, Professor Reed. So, uh, yeah, I'm down to call it a day. I I wanted to uh, mention again uh, that uh, there is the uh, the Democracy Festival. Let me find that real quick. I do want to make sure I plug that. Um, Alabama Forward presents the Democracy Now or Never Festival on Saturday, June 3rd. That's today. So if you're listening and you're in the Montgomery area, uh, swing by and check it out. It's uh, going to start at 4 p.m. with the opening pep rally to hear more about the fight for democracy here in Alabama. And then there's going to be a festival with free, fun, family event, you know, vendors, music, art, food, inspiration. So sounds like a really good way to do some politics and just have some fun and connect with people, build relationships. Uh, so yeah, just want to highlight that. Uh, I believe the, there was a pride parade in Huntsville today mm -hmm. as well. Uh, so you may have missed that already. And um, again, a reminder about shop talk on Thursday mornings. If you missed this week's episode, uh, go back and check it out. It should be coming out as a podcast any day now, but it is online on the live stream. Uh, we talked to Chris Townsend about some of the uh, books he's been getting republished, and I thought it was a good conversation. So uh, y'all check that out. Have you got uh, next week's Shop Talk already scheduled? Uh, it's know? sort of up in the air. Okay. I've got about three different guests that I'm I'm kind of juggling uh, for this month of June, trying to figure out who's going to be where. Mm. Uh, they're going to be good, okay. uh, but <laughs> it's, it's to be determined who's going to be when. All right. uh, but yeah, we've got some good stuff planned for sure. Uh, some of the some of the folks that we'll have on Shop Talk uh, this summer will be really impressive, I think. So, uh, and next week on the Valley Labor Report here on our Saturday show, uh, should we announce who we've got coming? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, we're... because we're, we're going to be talking to our very first presidential candidate. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, we're we're gonna be talking to Marianne Williamson. Is uh, that's that's the thing. So, so yeah, we're we're looking forward to the conversation. You know, I think neither of us are like maybe Adam more so than me, but neither of us are particularly like interested in the electoral stuff. Um, and 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 then oppositely, um, 
Conversely, I may be a little bit more sympathetic to Democrats or to using the Democrats as a as a ballot line maybe than Adam is. He he may be more interested in the independent stuff uh, than I am, and you know I don't think we have any illusions about the Marianne Williamson campaign. Uh, but you know there are some interesting things about it uh, about the campaign. Uh, we're very big fans of Harvey J.K. and he's one of her chief advisors, so that's uh, pretty cool. And um, and her father was a union organizer. Uh, so that is something that I want to spend some time on and and dig into. I think that yeah, that's, a, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that'll be an interesting conversation and something unique that, you know, because you can, you know, I I I. There are th- policy things that I want to ask her, uh, and and try, and I'm and we're gonna try to hit it from a, a different angle, maybe than other like political shows, left wing shows are going to because of our, uh, you know, in intent on being a labor focused union show, but uh, uh, but you you can go and see what she has to say about policy anywhere, um, in, in a lot of different. And places. I would recommend check out the interview with Max Alvarez with yes. the Real News Network. Uh, because I recommend them, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just as a as a media outlet, I think it's a great resource. And Max did have a really good interview with her uh, that I that I watched recently. And so, yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm, I'm but yeah, I think that conver- I think that conversation about you know her father maybe will will make us uh, you know will make our interview a bit unique among kind of uh, kind of the other stuff and give our listeners uh, a bit of a different perspective on Marianne, maybe the person and the candidate. So. Hopefully, uh, people will enjoy it. Yeah, and then uh, we've got a interview with David Van Dusen, who is the mm-hmm. president of the Vermont Labor Federation. And to me, he's one of those like up and coming labor leaders in this country. Uh, and he's a true militant, um, a, a real strong leader. Uh, I had a chat with him, and so we'll have that uh, for next week's episode. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, just appreciate everyone who tunes in likes comments donates you know all of your support really goes a long way we really appreciate it um and i have nothing else unless you do jacob nope that's it see you next week folks all right solidarity y'all